Good morning, church. I want to uh, just draw us back again into the first century of the Roman Empire. And in particular, I want to draw us back into uh, the early church and their life as they navigated living under the rule of the Roman Empire in specific. So the year is about AD 54, AD 55. And in the city of Rome, there are four or maybe five house churches that have been planted. It's likely that those churches were planted out of Peter's preaching in Acts chapter two and three, that some believers uh, who were present there heard Peter preach about the gospel, brought that gospel message back to Rome. And now at this time, four or five house churches have sprung up. Now those house churches, because they met in, in small homes or in apartments in the city of Rome, it's likely that these churches were composed of 30, maybe 40 uh, believers at the most. So we can imagine at this point in the city of Rome, uh, as Paul writes the letter of Romans, that there are, are, I mean, generous estimates, maybe 200 believers in the city of Rome. And so Paul writes this uh, letter to the Romans as a way of encouraging the people in the church of Rome as to how they should live under Roman rule and under Roman occupation. Now, from Romans chapter 1 all the way through to Romans chapter 15, Paul speaks encouragement to the church at Rome. We have no sense that this is a wayward church. In fact, Paul says uh, that they are full of goodness and truth. He says that later in chapter 15. And, and so really, the book of Romans, uh, the first half of it, is Paul is explaining theologically the story of redemption. In Romans chapter 12, Paul shifts gears and he begins to describe how the people should live in light of the gospel message of Jesus. So if you were here last week, as we got to Romans chapter 13, you heard me read these two verses, Romans 13, 11, and 12. It says, and do this, referring back to what Paul has said in Romans 12, the mission of the gospel, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over and the day is almost here. And so I used these three panels behind us to describe what Paul was talking about. Paul describes this moment in history where the redemptive message of Jesus has come. Paul says the hour has already arrived for believers to wake up from their slumber. And, and what Paul means by that is that we don't get so caught up in the rhythm and routine of life that we forget the spiritual reality to existence. Rather, Paul calls their attention back to the story of the gospel. And what we believe was that Jesus was born in a manger, that he lived and ministered, that he was crucified on a cross, and three days later, he rose again. And so the believers, they live in light of this hope, just as you and I do. We live in light of the hope that Jesus has ushered in this season of redemption in history. Now, Paul also makes this statement. He says, the night is nearly over and the day is almost here. And by the day, Paul means the day of Jesus' return. And I have a throne on here because we believe that when Jesus returns again, he will return as a king. And Philippians tells us that when he returns again, that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that when Jesus returns a second time, it will be in final and full victory. And so there's this tension for believers as Christians. We believe that redemption is here and we believe that Jesus will come again. And so it's both already but not yet. Does that make sense? Jesus and the message of redemption is already here, but not yet in its fullness. The tension then, church, for the early church in Rome is they, they live under the power structures of Roman Empire. 
So I've put this red building with columns here as, as a symbol of, of culture, as a symbol of the power structures that we live under. And so we talked about how you and I are called to live out a transformative gospel presence with an urgency driven by our mission and the timeliness of the present moment. That's what we talked about last week. Here's what I want to push into this week. When timing is urgent, as Paul says it is, what matters is how we invest our time. Not just acting recklessly, but with focus and intentionality. So let me illustrate this. And I know I've told this story before, so if you know it, just hang with me. Uh, When my wife was pregnant with our second child, um, you, you, with the second one, you, you've kind of been there before. So the first one is, is sheer terror kind of all the way through, right? You have no idea what to expect. With the second one, it's like, okay, we've been here. We, we kind of have an idea of what to do. And so as we get close to our due date, uh, my wife had this moment where she was at work and wasn't feeling well. So she went home and uh, she's kind of feeling, you know, maybe labor's going to start, not sure. So I, I went home on my lunch break and just kind of checked in, saw how she was doing. I'm making lunch for myself. And lo and behold, while I'm home for lunch, she goes, uh, it's go time, right? Baby's coming. And we were doctoring in Sioux Falls. So we had about an hour and 20 minute drive by the time we get to the hospital. And so I jump into like new dad mode, right? Like I'm grabbing the bags, I'm putting them in the car, I'm getting all the things ready. I've got our birth plan. Like I'm putting everything in. And Lauren, who was in the shower, she just kind of like meanders around and she's like, you know, I'm going to put on my out of office auto reply. And I was like, listen, your boss is going to understand if she doesn't get an email saying I'm out of the office for a bit. Like, don't worry about it. And, and I'm acting with what I would call urgency. And she's acting with what I would call complacency, right? She's just like, now in her mind, she knows like, okay, there's going to be a few hours of labor. We're in no hurry, right? Is I think the thought process. So finally, we get in the car after me, like urging her, like, let's go, let's go, like it's time. And so now we're on the interstate. And this is like the one moment in life where you feel like you have a trump card to get out of a ticket, right? So I'm going somewhere between 80 and 90, somewhere, miles an hour, right? Speeding a little bit. And and finally, we're getting close to Sioux Falls and I pull up behind a police officer, right? And this is like the moment every guy lives for when, when your wife is pregnant. I look at her, I'm like, should I call dispatch and see if like... We can get a, you know, police escort all the way to the hospital and we'll fly through. She goes, no, 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 we're fine. We're fine. So I'm like tailing this cop as close as I can without getting pulled over. Finally, he pulls off just north of Sioux Falls. We get to the north edge of Sioux Falls and Lauren looks at me and she goes, I think I need to push. I was like, uh, no, we're, we're 25, 25 minutes from the hospital you can't push, right? Like I'm telling her, you can't go into labor. Like that's not allowed. We're not there yet. And now I switched modes. I was no longer in like happy expectant dad mode. I'm act- I was like panicked, right? So I start weaving in and out of traffic. At one point we're stuck behind a school bus and I don't know why, but I start honking at this school bus, right? And the children are looking at me and I'm like, ah, I'm not angry. I love Jesus, but my wife's going to have a baby in the car. I would really, can, can I just get around you, right? And finally, at one point, Lauren grabs my arm and she looks at me and she goes, Aaron, this doesn't have to be stressful. And in my mind, I'm like, yeah, that's what you think. I'm going to deliver a baby in the car, right? What do, what do I cut the umbilical cord with? I don't even have anything, right? All these thoughts, like just sheer panic. So I call ahead to the hospital. We get there. They're not ready for us. Long story short, we delivered our second baby in the elevator of the hospital. Everything was fine. Like it all went, all went well. But, but I tell you that story to illustrate this, right? 
my, my mood, my attitude shifted from urgency to panic, right? And I just started doing all sorts of things, weaving in and out of traffic. I'm throwing bags in the car. And, and really though, that, that panic moment wasn't helpful, right? It made things more stressful for my wife. It made things more stressful for me and it couldn't change the present circumstance, right? So here, here's why I tell you that. The, the importance of this and what Paul is saying is this. When Paul calls us to urgency, what he means is there is an opportune time in front of us as believers to bring the redemptive hope of Jesus to bear on culture. Paul is not saying, everybody panic, right? And, and what I hear sometimes among believers is, oh, this is a panic moment, and we want to engage recklessly with culture. Paul is writing his letter to Romans to say, listen, he's saying, yeah, you live in the, the capital city of the Roman Empire. Yeah, you are oppressed by the the government of Rome. Yeah, they don't see you as a legitimate uh, religious belief system. They think you're some weird sort of cult. But Paul says, listen, act with urgency, not recklessly, not with panic. Act with focused intentionality. Let's flesh out what that looks like this morning. Romans chapter 13. Uh, Tyler, if you can switch to that passage for me, please. Awesome. Romans chapter 13. Verse 11, Paul says, and do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over and the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. So this week, we're going to finish out those last two verses here. Notice that this begins by Paul saying, so let us, right? And again, this refers back to what Paul has said previously. He says, the moment has come for you to act with urgency. Because the night is nearly over and the day of Jesus' return is almost here, because you are to wake up from your slumber, Paul says, this is how you should live. And he begins to describe for us what it looks like to live with intentional kingdom focus. And what Paul does here is he he creates a comparison and contrast. He'll say there are three or four things that you should not do, and here are three things that you should do. So as you walk through the passage, Paul will say this, let us put aside deeds of darkness. In other words, don't do these things. He will, he will tell us that we should engage not in this list of things, carousing drunkenness. He will tell us that we should not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. There's three things there. Paul says, don't do these things. Now, on the positive side of it, there are likewise things that Paul calls us to. He will call us to uh, put on the armor of light. He will call us to behave decently, and he will call us to clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, what Paul is describing here is between the already arrival of Jesus' redemption and the not yet moment of his coming, right here in the midst of culture, Paul is saying, here's how you live with kingdom focus. Don't engage in these things, rather engage in these things that are aligned with the truth of the redemptive purpose of Jesus. So let's flesh this out a little bit. Right away, Paul says, let us put aside the deeds of darkness. Now, by deeds of darkness, Paul means those things that don't align with the words, the ways, and the wisdom of God. What are those things, those ways of living and engaging that don't align with the truth of God's word? Now, uh, as, as Paul tells us not to engage these, the question might be, in a moment of urgency, why? Why set these things aside? Well, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul describes this. 
He says, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Now, here in this other letter of Paul, he goes into a little bit more detail about why we should set aside the deeds of darkness. Notice that Paul says, uh, that's how you used to be. You were once darkness, but now, right? There's a contrast. You are light in the Lord. In other words, Paul says, your identity is different. This is who we used to be. You used to walk in darkness. We used to walk in ways that were opposed to the words, ways, and wisdom of God. But Paul says, when you come to know Jesus, right? When you come to place your, your life and your, your trust in this message of Jesus, that he came, that he died, that he rose again to save us from our sins, we are transformed, right? This is what Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. When you offer your body as a sacrifice to Jesus, when you go all in on the Jesus thing, Right? Paul says you are transformed by the renewing of your mind. You no longer conform to culture. You're made new. So here Paul says that that's who you used to be. Don't live as your old self. Step into this new person that you are becoming in Jesus Christ. And by the way, notice that Paul says when you step into the light of the redemptive truth of Jesus, you bear fruit. And he says the fruit of walking in the light of Jesus is goodness, righteousness, and truth. So church, when we walk out an identity that is in line with the words, ways, and wisdom of Jesus, we bring the truth and the goodness and the love of Jesus to have transformative effect here. Now, as Paul goes on to describe the deeds of darkness, he says actually that the deeds of darkness are fruitless. Now, let me, let me ask you this question. If you were in a moment where time is of the essence, if you were in a moment where something is really urgent, do you want to engage in something that is fruitless? And something that ultimately is not going to bring about any lasting impact or effect in your life or in the lives of people around you. No, right? When the moment is urgent, we want to give our lives to ways of living that are fruitful. And so going back to Romans chapter 13, when Paul says, put aside the deeds of darkness, he's calling the early believers to live in a way aligned with the word of God that bears fruit right in the midst of culture. So Paul says, put aside the deeds of darkness. That is a fruitless way of living that has no transformative impact on culture around you. Now, as Paul continues uh, to describe this way of living, in verse 13, he says this. He says, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. And now Paul gets even more specific. Here are specific ways of living that are fruitless. Now, some of them, we, we kind of let ourselves off the hook. We look at them and we go, okay, uh, not in carousing, not in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery. And, and those seem like the biggies, right? We look at those and we go, oh yeah, those, those seem like really big things that we should not do. But notice the last two that Paul includes here as well. He says, not in dissension and not in jealousy. And my concern is that while some of us maybe have the big ones under control, drunkenness and sexual immorality, sometimes we get to this idea of dissension and jealousy, and this is one that is easy to sort of creep back in. And by dissension, Paul means this sort of strife and conflict, this sort of breaking apart of the unity of the church. 
And, and one of the things over the last couple of years that has been really challenging as a pastor is there's been all sorts of political ideologies and all sorts of opinions and all sorts of things about how things should happen. And I've watched brothers and sisters in Christ come to places of disagreement and live in dissension. And Paul goes, this is a fruitless way of living. If the urgency of the gospel really matters, Paul says, set those things aside. Don't live in dissension and strife. Rather, dwell in unity would be the, the positive uh, way to say that, right? Paul also then says jealousy. And by jealousy, right, he means a way of living that puts your own interest above every other interest. Jealousy is a life of comparison that I'm always gauging. Am I more successful than this person? Have I accomplished more than them? And Paul goes, just stop. Don't live that way. That is a fruitless way of living. In verse 14, this whole thing switches though. And Paul says this, he says, rather, Right? And this is a key sort of transition moment in this passage. He says, rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. And, and, and there Paul means don't think about, don't give time and energy, uh, don't invest your life in thinking about how to live in a rebellious way against God. Paul says, rather, clothe yourselves with Christ. Now, by clothing yourself with Christ, Paul means this. He means abide in Jesus and find in him the grace which empowers you to live out a transformed life that reflects the character of Jesus. Abide in him. Dwell in Jesus. And as you do, he begins to transform you from the inside out. Now, likewise, notice that Paul says this, and it's not by accident. He says, clothe yourselves, and notice the three uh, words he uses here, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we recognize, of course, that Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? The word Christ literally means Messiah or anointed one. And notice, too, that Paul includes this description of Jesus as Lord. That, that's not by accident. This is one of those things that we read right through. Yeah, Lord Jesus Christ. But remember, in Romans 13, 1 to 7, Paul had previously talked about submission to authority. Now, at the end of Romans chapter 13, Paul is reminding the believers in Rome, yes, you live here. Yes, you live in culture. But your lordship is ultimately to Jesus Christ. He is the one to which you were ultimately submitted. So when he says, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, what Paul is saying is, step into this new way of living that Jesus Jesus in the story of redemption calls you to live out the character of someone who is uh, citizenship is in heaven. We live out the culture of God's kingdom, not the culture of this earthly kingdom. Right? So when Paul says, Lord Jesus Christ, that, that, that is not something to just be glossed over. He's saying, recognize Jesus as Lord. And listen, church, when we recognize the Lordship of Jesus, it means that we are called to surrender our agenda to his. It means that my life is no longer lived for my own purposes. My life is no longer meant with, lived with me calling the shots. Rather, I surrender my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So practically, let's talk about what this might look like practically. So think about maybe your workplace. Maybe tomorrow morning, you're going to go to work and you have a boss, a supervisor, a coworker, someone you work with is just really difficult, Right? Now, Paul previously has said, Romans 13, 1 to 7, submit to authority. And so maybe two or three weeks ago when Pastor Steve talked about that and we read it, you're like, oh man, I don't, what does this look like? So sometimes what happens in, in, in our flesh, right, is you walk into work on a Monday morning and you're like, man, I can't stand this boss. I, I just, I, I'm going to push back on everything they say. I'm going to be difficult because I just, I cannot stand working with this person. 
when we recognize the lordship of Jesus, what if on Monday morning, when you walk into that workplace with a difficult boss or a difficult coworker, what if we began to pray something like this? Jesus, you know how hard it is for me to work under the leadership of this person. In my flesh, Jesus, I want to be difficult and I want to argue and I want to be engaged in conflict. But Jesus, I recognize that you have a gospel purpose in mind for my supervisor. I'm surrendering my agenda to you, Jesus. Would you help me to live out a gospel agenda in the life of my supervisor? Would you help me, Jesus, to be patient and to serve them well so that they might know the truth and the hope of you? And let it be a prayer of of surrender into that moment, not for your own agenda, but surrender into what Jesus might want to do in the life of that person. So if I were going to summarize this far, what we've talked about, all right, let's pull it back in. What I think Paul was telling the believers is this, wake up, recognize the significance of the moment that you're in. Surrender your life to Jesus and live out our new identity as those who are like Christ and invest our lives in those things that bear fruit for the kingdom movement that Jesus is doing, right? That's how I would summarize Romans 13, 11 to 14. It's this moment of surrendering your life, surrendering your agenda to him and acting with urgency aligned with the gospel purpose of what Jesus is doing redemptively in the world. Now, here's the other thing I'm aware of. To this point, we've talked about a lot of theology, the redemption of Jesus, the coming kingdom, living in the tension of the already but not yet. And those things are great biblical realities, but I'm also aware that up to this point, it's been fairly abstract, right? But I want to take it one step further and get really concrete and practical. Can we do that? Where Paul says, clothe yourselves with Christ, I want to ask this question. What does it practically look like to live with kingdom focus? What does it really look like when it comes down to it? How do, invest, how do I invest my life in culture with urgency, not panic, with urgency that has a kingdom focus and seeks to bring the redemptive possibilities of Jesus to bear in this place? I, I want to submit to you that I think Paul has already described that in Romans chapter 12, verse 14. I hope, by the way, last week I suggested that you read Romans 12 and 13 in one sitting. I hope that you did that because what you see is that Romans 13 doesn't sit in isolation. It's this argument that Paul has been unfolding. So when Paul says, clothe yourselves with Christ, you realize he's already described it in Romans chapter 12, right? And by the way, when you read Romans chapter 12, what I'm about to read for you, I want you to hear the echoes of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. So much of this comes right out of that. Listen to this, Romans 12 verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. 
On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And there, Paul describes for the believers what it looks like to radically and in a countercultural way live in the capital city of Rome in a way that is countercultural, in a way that is transformative, in a way that brings the reality of the gospel of Jesus to bear in a new way. Now, notice what he says. Let's walk through this. He says, bless those who persecute you. Man, what, what a difficult teaching. I, I don't know about you, but I struggle with this. When someone is opposing me, I mean, not even persecution, just when somebody's difficult, I struggle to want to be a blessing to them. How about you? But Paul says, bless them and do not curse. When he says do not curse, he doesn't mean like that you're swearing about them. When he says do not curse, to curse someone is to wish them harm. It's to wish them ill. When Paul says, though, be a blessing to them, what he means is that you are praying to God on their behalf, asking God to allow them to experience God's blessing and God's flourishing in their life. Now, what you and I know as believers is that they will experience that flourishing ultimately when they come to know Jesus. So when Paul says, bless them and do not curse, you are to not only work to be a blessing in their life, but you are to be praying on their behalf. So think about how this transforms the way that you engage with that difficult supervisor at work or a difficult parent that you know, as scripture says, honor your father and mother. And you're like, ah, but my parent is just really difficult. They're hard to submit to. And I don't know how. And Paul says, be a blessing to them. Intercede, pray for them uh, to God on their behalf that they would know blessing and flourishing and well-being in the presence of Jesus. Paul then says this, verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. This is, this is powerful to me. Do, do you realize what Paul is saying here? He's saying, don't get so absorbed in your own world that you miss the emotional state and well-being of people around you. What Paul is saying here is slow down long enough, be relationally present enough to enter the joys and the sorrows of the people that are all around you in community. That, that is powerful to me because how many times, let, let's go back to that, that supervisor, right? That difficult person at work. How many times do you just go, man, they, they are terrible. They're not a great leader. Have you ever stopped to wonder what is maybe happening behind the scenes in the life of that person? And Paul says, slow down long enough so that you can enter that moment of joy with someone when they're rejoicing. Slow down and be relationally present enough that you can enter that season of mourning with someone who is utterly heartbroken. And sometimes, church, quite frankly, we're too wrapped up in our own agenda. We're too wrapped up in our own anger and woundedness and brokenness that we don't live out the redemptive truth of Jesus to be a, a transformative presence in the life of that person. Paul continues, verse 16, he says, live in harmony with one another. I'm going to jump down to verse 18. He says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Live in harmony, live in peace. Now, Paul is not saying this. He's not saying just be a people pleaser. No, no, no. Paul is saying live in a way in which you're relationally connected with one another. Don't let conflict go unresolved. Live in harmony with them. In verse 18, I was struck by this phrase that Paul says, as, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with that person. And, and I love that because sometimes, right, in a moment of conflict, I go, man, this person's really angry with me. I'm going to be angry right back. 
Paul says, right, I can't control their disposition. What I can control is whether or not I am living out in an attitude of gospel forgiveness towards them. They might not be at peace with me, but as far as it depends on me, I can say, Jesus, help me to walk in forgiveness with this person. Help me to walk in a, in a way of peace with this person. Now, church, here, here's what I've seen over the last couple of years, right? Is some of us are quick to rise to a fight and we, we want to know this person is wrong and I'm going to tell them that they're wrong. And sometimes under the guise of crusading for truth, we really just want to be right. And I've watched a number of believers sacrifice relationship for the, for the purpose of just being right. And listen, you might very well be correct, but listen, if you are rupturing relationship and losing an opportunity to tell people and to model for them what the gospel of Jesus looks like, you've done nothing. Let me phrase it another way. In the words of my uh, dear friend and mentor, you don't have to show up to every fight that you're invited to. Right? And sometimes somebody wants to invite you into conflict, right? And, and you know it's going to be a conflicted moment. Listen, you don't have to rise into that moment and engage in a relationship rupturing conflict. And by the way, just as a side note, um, one of the things that I've watched with, with weird interest over the last couple of years is like the number of times that we argue with strangers on the internet. Can I, can I just tell you like, I've seen almost no fruit when anyone argues with strangers on the internet, right? And some of us are sitting there going, yeah, but they're wrong. Yeah, but do you have influence in their life? Has God called you to make an impact on their life? Do you have any sort of relational connection? Are you calling them back to the truth of Jesus? Or do you just want them to know that their position is stupid, right? Let's be honest. What's our motivation? So here's what I do. When, when there's a conversation and I'm going, man, Jesus, do I engage or not? I run it through a rubric of three things. I ask, will it be fruitful? Am I being faithful? And will it promote fellowship? And what I mean by that is there are moments, like some, sometimes like somebody would be really angry towards me and they're just gonna tell me all the things that I've done wrong. It, sometimes in that moment I go, you know what? It's not gonna be fruitful for me to argue my position. I'm just gonna hear the person out and ask for forgiveness if I need to. Now, the faithful component is, is two things. One, am I being faithful to God's word? But secondly, it's also this. Sometimes the spirit convicts you to speak truth into the life of a person. And when the spirit convicts, hey, you need to speak into this, I wanna be faithful to that. But as I'm faithful to speak into that, what I wanna do is I wanna speak into that moment. I wanna speak into that person's life in a way that encourages ongoing relationship. Too many times we're willing to sacrifice relationship to hold to a position that we think is right. And what happens, church, is we lose any sort of gospel transformative presence in the life of that person because we sacrifice our influence so they'll think we're right. Quite honestly, I'm okay sometimes walking away from a conversation where somebody thinks I'm a big dummy. I don't need them to think that I'm right. I don't need them to think that I have the best argument. What I hope they walk away with is that I love them. I want them to know truth. And I think that Jesus has the best for them. Other than that, I'm not sure I care what they think about me. Paul continues. What does it look like to live with kingdom focus? 12 verse 16. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Now, be reminded that the church in Rome, right, these were not people with political power. They were not people who had any sort of influence in the city of Rome. 
It's likely that at this point in the early church, they were mostly slaves or former slaves. It was uh, likely women who didn't have a lot of uh, financial economic resource. It was tradesmen who they worked as part of a guild, but they didn't have social power and influence. And there was a temptation to say, if I could just build relationships with people in high positions of social status and standing, maybe I can have an impact here. But Paul tells these early believers, he goes, listen, continue to walk in humility. Be willing, he says, to associate with people of low status. And when you associate with people of low status, you are building relationships with people who have nothing to offer you economically, politically, or culturally. Paul goes, stop playing political relational games. Walk humbly and love people well. As Paul continues, right, he says in in verse 20, He says, uh, don't take revenge, right? Rather, seek to serve. And notice what he says. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And those burning coals are the coals of conviction. That as you serve that person who is your enemy, the idea is that your service to them, uh, in a sense, calls out their shame of their treatment towards you. Right? And Paul, this is an utterly like countercultural way to live. I don't know about you, but when I'm mistreated, when someone is my enemy, I, I want to be defensive and I want to get him back. And Paul goes, rather than trying to get that person back, trust God's justice. Trust that when Jesus returns, he, he will finally and fully redeem all things. Right now, Paul says, that person who's your enemy, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Oh, man, I just, that's tough. I mean, go, go back to that example that we've been kind of using, right? The, the difficult supervisor at work. I think Paul would tell you, rather than being a thorn in their flesh, go to work and ask, how can I help them flourish? Go to work and ask, how can I make this supervisor look good? They're probably going to take all the credit for it, and they might not even value my work in the process, but how, how can I serve them? Finally, uh, Paul says this in verse 17. He says, don't repay anyone evil for evil but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And again, Paul is not saying be a people pleaser. What he's saying is live in such a way in your relational connections with other people that you are working for the common good of people around you. And church, I think that this is a transformative way that Paul calls us to live. And by the way, again, he's echoing the teaching of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. What we want to do in the middle of culture right, is we want to sort of power up. We want to play political games. We want to be right. We want to be the people who they know our position as Christians is smart and good and right. And yet Paul in the middle of this says, walk humbly, love people well, live out a transformed lifestyle that bears witness to the goodness of Jesus Christ. And listen to what he says, do not be overcome by evil. This is the last verse in Romans 12, but overcome evil with good. And what I love about that church is it's the way of the mustard seed, right? Living out this way of living seems ineffective. Church, this is a crisis of faith moment for us. It's the question of do you really believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough? You don't have to power up and play political games. You don't have to seize power legislatively to somehow make culture different. That's not what Paul argues. What he says is, Walk humbly. Serve that person who mistreats you. Love them well. Be a blessing giver and a peacemaker. And for many of us, we're going, Paul, this just doesn't seem like enough. And what he says is, 
You can't overcome evil by playing evil games. You overcome evil by living out the quiet truth of the gospel and trust that the Jesus who came in a manger will return as a king and that his sovereign plan is unfolding precisely as God means it to. Let, let me ask you a question, church. Do you believe that God is out of control? Seriously then what I have to believe, if God is in control, and I believe that he is sovereign and he is in control, then I trust that what is unfolding is in his timeline, in his plan, even in the midst of a broken world. And my question is, Jesus, what are you up to and how can I partner with you in a gospel way of living? I leave you with a question again. And I know some of you hate this because you want three little application points and I wish I had them for you. Like when, you know, like sometimes it's hard as you're preaching something. I don't, I don't have a lot of answers. My goal is to draw us into the tension of the text and I want you to wrestle with this question. How can I live with urgent yet focused kingdom intentionality? What does it look like in your context? What does it look like in your family? What does it look like in your workplace? What does it look like in all the spheres of influence that you have? How do you walk out this kingdom way of living? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for this way of living that Paul calls us to. And and God, if I'm honest, there's times I look at it and I go, is this enough? Is this gonna make any difference or make any impact? And yet I see Paul's statement, Jesus, at the end of chapter 12. Don't be overcome by evil. And God, I I pray that this would be true of us, that we would look what's happening around us. Let us not be overcome because we are not overcome. We are not of those who are defeated, but we are those who rise up in victory through the transformative power of you, Jesus. So help us to trust your grace. Help us to trust that you are sovereign as you say you are. And help us to trust that you are unfolding your redemptive plan and your redemptive purpose. And so, Father, I pray that we would not be dismayed, but I pray that as we leave this moment of worship in a few minutes, as we step into the rhythm and routine of family living and work, and all the other things that happen. God, would you help us to humbly walk out, live out a transformative gospel presence in a way that points people to you, Jesus. Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.